Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. John 6, 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? so that these may eat. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, all wisdom and all light is found in you. And we pray that you would mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit. In the true understanding of your word, give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. Bless all of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. The Son of God's rebuke of the unbelieving Jews ends, which was chapter 5. And our passage begins with this phrase, after these things. We, we don't know exactly how much time passed between Jesus' sermon and the events that take place in, in the passage that we're looking at this morning. The, con- the consensus seems to be that about a year passes between chapter 5 and 6 in the Gospel of John. A year that the other Gospels cover. The entire Galilean period is not covered in John's Gospel at all, except for this this one miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. What's passed over in John's Gospel 
Uh, Jesus reading Isaiah in the synagogue, announcing that that scripture has been fulfilled that day. Uh, The members of the synagogue chasing him to the edge of the cliff. Uh, The calling of Peter and Jesus' words to him that he would be a catcher of, of men. The calling of the apostle Matthew, the announcement that new wine must be placed in new wineskins. Jesus teaching on the Sabbath. The, the choosing of the remaining apostles, the Sermon on the Mount, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of the widow's son, the questions of the disciples of John to Jesus, the parable of the two debtors, the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, the stilling of the sea, the healing of the, the garrison demoniac, the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage, the raising uh, raising from death the daughter of the synagogue official, and the sending out of the twelve when he, he told them to take nothing for their journey. And then all of those things, which are in the synoptic gospels, then comes the feeding of the 5,000. None of that appears in John's gospel. It's an astonishing list of events that that he determined to leave out of his gospel. But, but certainly his purpose in writing the gospel of John was different, right? Rather than accounting for all that Christ had done, he was writing to show a, a theological a picture of Jesus as the Christ. And so he had a different purpose in writing his gospel. Verse 31 of chapter 20 says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? The Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Contrast that statement with what the, uh, the Luke says at the beginning of his gospel, right? He says, as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. And so he gives his purpose there, much different than the Gospel of John, much different than what John said. So John's purpose is different, and instead of a chronological presentation of events, he focused in on certain events that, have, that served his purpose, right? He, to show forth Jesus as the Christ. So John's gospel is a theological book. That does not mean that it is any less true. A historical account of events is, is no more true than a systematic theology. Right? So, so it, he has different purposes. John jumps to the last miracle of Jesus' time in Galilee. But there's a lot that appears in John that we don't get in the synoptic gospels. Right? Much of the, the preaching of Jesus is contained in the Gospel of, of John, but not in the Synoptics. So it's, it's also important to point out something else. Chapter 5 took place in Judea. And it's an account of how the Judeans rejected Jesus. Chapter 6 now takes place in Galilee, north, and it's account, an account of how the Galileans reject Jesus. Look at verse 66 of chapter 6. It says this, As a result of this, what Jesus had been teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
Hendrickson concludes from this, the account of this double rejection in Judea and in Galilee is necessary in order to furnish a background for the next few chapters in the sense that it causes the tender love of the Savior to stand out sharply against the background of human ingratitude. That ingratitude is actually a theme of the entire Gospel of John. In chapter 1, in the prologue, John writes, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And he lays that out through the whole book. Tightly conjoined to that truth is the truth that it is only those who are born again who will receive Jesus. Right? It, that, that too is certainly a theme of the Gospel of, of John. It is not enough to be a Jew outwardly. One must be circumcised in the heart. So Jesus comes to his people and shows them tender mercy. We see that right at the beginning of this passage. He heals their sick. Elsewhere we see he raises the dead. He blesses them with authoritative teaching. He shows them the Father. He promises them the Spirit. And he feeds them. Today we consider the fact that the Son of God fed the hungry. Right? He cared for bodies. Even as he cared for souls. He knew he knew the pain of hunger, right? Jesus knew what it's like to be hungry, and it's terrible. Right? It's terrible to be hungry. Um, perhaps none of us have really known what it is to be hungry day after day, right? We, we've fasted for 24 hours, maybe, and we've known that hunger, but, but Jesus knew the pain of hunger. How? Well, Scripture says, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. 40 days and 40 nights of a fast. At which point, you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, the tempter then comes to him after those 40 days and suggests that he cook a meal by changing those stones into bread. Jesus had a body just like yours. Jesus has a body just like yours. Save the corruption of sin that's in your flesh, right? He had a stomach. He knew, therefore, the pain associated with hunger. In fact, um, <clears throat> this is what we must remember. The body, the body and the pains associated with the body and the body's desires are so powerful that they often dictate what we do. They tell us what to do next, right? We concern ourselves with bodies because the senses of our bodies can be so in incredibly overwhelming. We concern ourselves with, with what we feel, and that, that can crowd out what's, any concerns that we have for our souls. Right? We'll choose body over, over righteousness, over our souls. Right? The body can be overwhelming, and one of the tasks of Christians is to not let the body be our master. That is one of, one of your marching orders as a Christian, to master your body and make it your slave. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires, its lusts. Right? And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, members of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. Later, he warns, um, the Apostle Paul warns the Roman Christians to turn away from those who are causing dissensions in the church. They do so because they are what? Slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. Their bodies and the desires and lusts. Right? Their bodily appetites lead them and are the master they serve. To the Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes about the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says those enemies, uh, the enemies of the cross of Christ are those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, appetites. And to the Corinthians, again the Apostle Paul writes, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He buffets the body. He tries to master the body to make it his slave because if he doesn't, guess what? He's enslaved to the body. Now, I don't want to go too far with this and end up saying that the body is evil and going dualistic on you. The appetites of our bodies can lead us to sin, but the body is not somehow more evil than our fallen minds, our fallen hearts, our fallen souls, right? It is not more evil. The, the Heidelberg Catechism says that we belong in body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The body is his, the soul is his. Scripture teaches us that the body is not hopeless, sort of uh, hopelessly unsanctifiable. Right, again, the Apostle Paul, the body is not for immorality. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. For the Lord is for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then it's right at that point that he says, then don't join your bodies to a prostitute. Don't become one with the body of a prostitute. So all of that to say that the appetites of the body are powerful, they must be controlled, which is not to say that the body is corrupt and the other parts of man, his mind, his will, his spirit, his affections are somehow untouched by the fall. Right? They are touched too. Scripture opposes uh, the Gnostic heresy which lays all the blame on the body. Right? No, the body is fallen. It must be controlled it can lead us into sin, but it, it, it is meant to be sanctified and we are meant to uh, master it by faith. That's depressing for some of you to think about because you're mastered by your body. You think that there's no way I can say no to my body. Now, why, why all of this before this passage? <laughs> because we find something out about the people that that Jesus feeds that day in his miraculous distribution. Look ahead at verse 26. 
right? Look ahead of our passage, verse 26. The following day, the crowd that had been fed follows Jesus. Jesus knows why they are following him. It is because, right, he's the way of salvation, right? It's because they finally found salvation and food for their souls in Jesus, He's the second Adam who will rescue them from their bondage to sin. Well, no, that's not what it says. It is because Jesus rescued them from hunger, their strong appetite. Jesus gave them, you know, a temporary victory over those urges of hunger. We read this in John 6.22. The next day, the crowds that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was Uh, no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, all right, that's when things are serious. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So you see, they followed Jesus because they liked his menu. They liked his menu. They were motivated to follow Jesus because they wanted deliverance from their hunger, not because they hungered for eternal life. Of course, from, from there, Jesus goes on to talk about how he is the bread of heaven, right? He is the bread of heaven. He is real food, which then culminates in his statement, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Right? To these words, many of those who followed him fall away saying, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it? So even as we go through this passage, remember that the ingratitude of the people will be on display and their living for their bodily appetites is going to be on display. That's what comes next, right? Which leads me to a very simple diagnostic question. Do we serve the appetites of our bodies as a false god? Do we serve the appetites of our body as a false god, right? Is it taste and sensation and emotional stimulation and visual stimulus that motivate us? Are we like Eve? who looked on that fruit and was overcome by her senses, right? She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, right? She's having a festival of sensations right at that point. 
Would we rather get high than offer a sacrifice of praise to God? Serious question. Would we rather get drunk than offer a sacrifice of praise to God? Right? Would we rather stimulate ourselves with, I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it, caffeine, right? than read a chapter of Scripture? Would we rather receive the shot of adrenaline that comes from hearing the applause of an audience than, than hearing God's well done? Right? Would we rather the warmth of a dose of an opiate working through our body than being filled with the Spirit? Would we rather have pectoral muscles right, than, than have joy in the Lord, to have real spiritual strength? Right? Would we rather give in to the... the the body's appetites then buffet the body and make it our slave, right? Would we honestly rather be the man who has his good things in this life, right? Desires, you know, dressing in fine clothing and eating fine foods than be the man who waits for the good things to come, wearing, wearing a robe of righteousness and feasting at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I mean, honest questions. There's a, there's a competition in your own soul for these things, and I know there is because it's the competition that rages in my own body. Right? Some of you, some of you, some of us will choose our bodily appetites over the bread of heaven. How many people have left this church choosing their bodies over their, their relationship with Almighty God? It happens. It happens all the time. Will we be mastered by our own bodies? When Jesus offers us physical bread as a testimony to his heavenliness, will we choose, you know, will we choose sourdough over salvation? Is that what we'll do? So stop and think about that. Go from this sermon contemplating whether you are led around by your body Right, to the anger of your heavenly Father, or whether you are fighting to make your body your slave and, and then having the smile, the delight of your heavenly Father who wants you to, to buffet your body. Right? Now, to back up and contemplate some other lessons from this passage, even, even though those who witnessed the miracle of Jesus cared more for physical bread than spiritual bread, we shouldn't overlook the love of Jesus in providing for their physical needs. This is the kindness of Jesus to, to care for their physical needs. Jesus saw the large crowds, and as it says about this scene in Matthew, um, Matthew's gospel that we just read, he felt compassion for the people. And what does that compassion lead him to do? It leads him to feed them, to fill their stomachs with food. He knows their rejection is coming. And he still has, has compassion on them. Even though he knows of their ingratitude, he is kind to them and gives thanks to God for the food that he's going to give to those who are ungrateful. In fact, that is true of God always and everywhere. That is always true of God. That and that is to be a pattern for us. Jesus taught that concept that we are to be kind even to unbelievers in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Excuse me. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect. You are to be mature. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So think about that. God is gracious toward the evil and the good. Those who are opposed to Jesus. Can you just turn on this mic? God is gracious toward the evil and the good. Those who, who oppose Jesus Christ, he is still gracious to. Right? And, and we are to do likewise. There, there is so much animosity of reformed folks toward pagans right now isn't there? We're just so angry about everything. We're so angry about the ignorance of unbelievers. We rant and rave about the ignorance of unbelievers. Where is the shining example of Reformed Christians loving our enemies? Right? Where is the example of us aiming to relieve the spiritual and even physical suffering of unbelievers? Right? The theonomists rant and rave about the status quo with very little compassion, aligned with, with the conservative political platform on most things. And on the other side of things, the social gospelers go Gnostic. They only care about the body and they forget the soul and they're aligned with the liberal platform on, on most things. And we, we shouldn't make either error. We should not make either error. Right? We shouldn't forget that God's compassion is expressed even toward his enemies. We shouldn't forget the, the eternal when seeking to relieve temporal suffering. And Jesus gives us that example here in this passage of the feeding of the 5,000. No doubt a mixed multitude, evil and righteous gathered together. And Jesus gives us the example here, especially when, when we know ahead of time that what is revealed about their desires for physical bread, that they're there just for that and not for him. The whole world redounds to the praise of God's kindness. Right? We are called to that kind of maturity too. We should desire to relieve the fallen misery of our neighbors even while we speak to them of the overwhelmingly more important reality of the eternality of the soul and the reality of the judgment to come. But we mustn't forget about the body. Compassion, kindness. Now, Jesus, Jesus turns to Philip. Every one of his words is, is always packed with intent and meaning. Right? Jesus turns to Philip, one of the apostles, and asks him a question. Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Right? Having... Having been the logistical guy for conferences, 
It's the kind of question that makes your heart sink. It's like, man, we've been working hard, we've got all this done, and you're going to ask us now to, to do this? Feed 5,000 people? We haven't prepared for this. Right? The generals of our armed forces probably had a similar heart-sinking reaction when Biden commanded them to get the troops out of Afghanistan. Right? How, how do we do that? In the case of Jesus' question, he's asking it, as it says in verse 6, as a test. He's testing Philip, right? specifically Philip, this one guy, he's testing him. Jesus already knew what he was going to do, the miracle he was going to perform, but he begins with a test for one apostle, right? He's a good father who's training his sons. That's what he's doing. He's testing Philip this time. Uh, It's worth pointing out that Philip is from Bethsaida, where they are currently located, right? This This is his home these are his stomping grounds, right? So there was a good logistical reason to ask this question of him. Jesus always thinking, again, about the men around him, not just the logistical situation, uses the events to prove Philip. And how was this a test? I believe he, he was just testing Philip to see if he had faith, a robust faith in him. Could Jesus, who had performed the miracle of turning water into wine, right, provide food for these people? Right? Could, could Philip make the connections, having seen these signs and been with Jesus, could, could, he, could he make the connections? Could the God who provided manna for the Israelites in the wilderness feed these people? Right? Would Philip think along these lines, or would he be a logistics man? He's testing to see if Philip is awake in his faith, right? Well, what is his response? 200 denarii, 200 days wages, worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He goes logistical, right? He goes logistical. At that point, Andrew, also, again, a native of this town, Bethsaida, steps up and says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are those for so many people? Now, that's interesting to me. Why even make the point then? Right? I mean, the other Gospels don't even mention that it's a lad who has these five loaves and two, right? It just, they say, they claim it as their own already. Right, but why even point that out when 5,000 men plus women and children are being considered? Why point out a supply that would feed 20 of them, maybe? Right, 20. Or is, is Andrew hinting at something? Is there a glimmer of faith here? Does he point them out thinking that Jesus could do what he is about to do? If so, that thought doesn't, doesn't last long um, because he concludes, but what are these for so many people? You know, what are these? Uh, one of the commentaries I was reading, Adersheim, of this statement says, he added this to his statement of fact, half in disbelief, half in faith's rising expectancy of impossible possibility. 
So maybe there was some faith in this. Maybe he's making a suggestion. Maybe he's sort of like, Jesus, come on, man. What the reality of the shortage of provisions does point out is that this work Jesus was about to do was no logistical feat. It was not a logistical feat, but rather it was a miracle, right? They did not have, and Jesus had to create something out of nothing to feed them, right? This is a miracle. Jesus said, have the people sit down. It was a lovely grassy place, right? A a perfect place for a picnic. The men, which means all of them, the men, women, and children, sat down, and the men numbered 5,000. I suppose it's worth pointing out that this would require the apostles uh, to serve them this bread. And, right, because they sat down, they're going to be located in one place. So the apostles serve them this bread rather than the people coming forward to the apostles and taking the bread from them. It was orderly, but it was also the apostles' work of service to, to these people. And the people sat down. Let's... Let's not overlook that fact either. That's an act of faith. That very thing is an act of faith. They did not begin to question why and what and how. Right? They just sat down. They sat down. Calvin points this out. He says, while they are uncertain about the result, they all sit down as soon as a single word of command has been pronounced. And this is the trial of true faith when God commands men to walk, as it were, in darkness. For this purpose, let us learn not to be wise in ourselves, but amidst great confusion, still to hope for a prosperous issue when we follow the guidance of God who never disappoints his own people. Right? Even just, that's what Calvin gets out of this command, sit down and they sit down. Right? That's, the sort of, that's the sort of work we need to do in scripture when we do our private devotions. There's nothing insignificant in scripture. The fact that they sat down After one word of Jesus is significant. Our days, you know, thinking about what Calvin says there, right? Our days have been confused recently. What with everything about COVID. But our response should be similar to to this. God will not disappoint his own people. God does not disappoint his own people. He still rules from heaven, no no matter how aggressive and incompetent our government becomes or has always been, right? All men in all ages have had to live under incompetent rulers who are sinful. That's common to every age, but don't lose sight of the, the fact that God still sovereignly cares for his people. Don't lose sight of that. He may have called us to walk in darkness for the last two years, but he will never disappoint us. He will always provide. Right? Then verse 11. Then comes the miracle. The miracle of the feeding of the people from those five loaves and two fish is preceded by one small act by Jesus. What does Jesus do? What does he do first? He gives thanks. He gives thanks. This is what we do at the Lord's Supper. We give thanks before we partake. This is what we do when we gather for our daily bread before each meal. We give thanks for what God has provided. Um, This is what our hearts should continually be doing for all of God's provision through every moment of every 
one of our days, right? Thanksgiving, we, we would all say is the hallmark of the Christian. You know what a hallmark is, right? When you stamp the purity of the metal on the metal, that it's a hallmark. Thanksgiving is the hallmark of the Christian. A thankful heart is a pure heart. A thankful disposition is a proof that, that you are mindful of God's infinite goodness and his fatherly care for his people. And conversely, a thankless heart is proof that you believe God to be a cruel master who only deserves maybe a begrudging obedience, an unhappy obedience, right? The loaves and the fish, like the, the oil jar of the uh, widow of Zarephath, does not run out. Instead, chunk after chunk are torn from the loaf, and the loaf regenerates. Each portion of the fish removed and given is then regenerated. Right? This was, as Ryle puts it, a continual act of creation. Continuous creation going on at this point. Notice that all ate, and of the fish, it says that each had as much as they wanted. They got as much as they wanted. What glory, right? God is not a miser only giving what exactly was needed to meet what they, you know, to, to give them sufficient amino acids to stay alive. Right? He, he supplied enough to satisfy them. And, and I have to point out what Ryle says at this point. <laughs> he writes, and Calvin says something else that's very funny at this point. He says, they were satisfied even though the fish didn't have sauce. Calvin says that. <laughs> right? But Ryle says it would be impossible to convince 5,000 hungry men in a wilderness that they were really filled if they were not. Right? It'd be impossible to convince dudes that they were filled if they weren't. I mean, a riot could have broken out. But no, God satisfied them and gave them abundantly, and each person was fulfilled, which, which God provides. Right? God always provides. He provides. After the meal, Jesus commands his men to gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost, he says. Jesus does not want the excess to go to waste. The next night, some will be eating these leftovers. Right? And, they, and they will be thankful for, for even leftovers. Twelve baskets full become meals for another day. Um, more, notice more was left over than was started with. Five loaves became food for all present and 12 baskets full left over. Um, we could go crazy allegorical on all of that, but I won't. Uh, after all was done, the people marveled. But remember, their marveling will shortly unravel. They would rather have physical bread than the bread of heaven. They say now, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, you know, of which Moses spoke. But in, in the coming days when he speaks to them about eating his flesh, they will turn away in unbelief. 
temporary excitement about the things of God is no proof that someone has become a follower of God. Temporary excitement is nothing. The elders know this intimately. How many times have we, we seen somebody young come to faith, excited about the things of the Lord, and we warn them, yes, but, but fight this. And that thing ends up just taking over. Right? The cares of the world come and choke out what good the word would have done. Right? Temporary excitement about the things of God is no proof that someone has become a follower of God. It is those who persevere to the ends that will be saved. It is those who run up against some trials and come through them by faith. Right? It's those who can go through years and years of just boring sanctification that are Christians. Those are Christians. What God has promised you is suffering, not mountaintop experiences and excitement. Right? And your suffering may be like this. He may call you as a Christian to bear children and use your body and give up the beauty of your body to, as, a, as an expression of faith in him and to be sanctified by it, right? He may make, he, uh, he, he may ask you to home educate your children and you'll suffer, and it will be a slow sanctification, right? Right? Some of, you, some of you won't have the faith for either of those things, and you won't pass the trial that God has given to you. I'm not saying that you have to homeschool. You get my point, right? This is what the Lord, this is the excitement of the Lord in our lives. This is his presence in our lives, doing the mundane by faith, right? And so it's those who persevere. It is those who, who run up against trials. They come through them by faith. It's those who fight temptations and who fight through disappointments with their church even. It's those who fight through those things that are on the narrow path. But, ex, uh, but a quick explosion of excitement is proof of nothing. Proof of nothing. Right? That you spoke in tongues means nothing. Nothing at all. Right? That, this is what is so wicked about Finney's methods, right, that Renton taught us about a few weeks ago. Today's altar call. They're meant to produce a quick explosion of excitement. But they don't prove anything. They prove nothing. Right? Christians will be known by their fruit, and fruit takes a full season to mature. Right? We see, to, to summarize, we see in this passage Christ's power. We see in this passage Christ's ministry to souls and bodies. We see in this passage Christ's provision. Right? We see in this passage uh, those things and and. And what is coming up, that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As I said, what comes will be a rejection of Jesus' words. 
right? Many received physical bread from him, but would not receive the things that he said about eternal life. Many today are the same. They want physical things. They want provision. They want food. They want money. They want mystical experiences. They want mountaintop, mountaintop life, but they don't want Jesus' sermons, his words that say things like, love your neighbor, Pray for those who persecute you. Be fruitful and multiply. Right? I pray that that's not true of, of any of us, that we will thankfully receive his daily provision and, and then uh, wholeheartedly embrace every word that proceeds out of his mouth. This is what we will see the people reject coming up. They are hard words that come up about his body and his blood eating his body, drinking his blood, right? He being the bread of heaven. And they just want bread. They want bread. But they need the bread of heaven, and they will be sorely disappointed when they realize that they lived for their stomachs rather than for eternal life.